Uh, good morning, everyone, uh, and welcome. Uh, I'm John Podesta, the president of the Center for American Progress, and on behalf of the Center and Foreign Policy Magazine, I want to welcome you uh, to today's event on the Terrorism Index, a joint survey created by Foreign Policy Magazine and the Center for American Progress. Uh, I think this is uh, indeed a, a, a timely uh, a event, uh, given the news this morning of the arrests in, uh, in Denmark and Germany. Uh, it reminds us that we still face uh, 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 difficult times in the world, and, and the threat of terrorism is uh, with us around the globe. Uh, so I think this uh, survey uh, and the foreign policy experts we've assembled to conduct the survey uh, will have some uh, uh, important uh, evidence to guide us. Uh, I want to thank th uh, three people from foreign policy uh, for their great work on the index. Mike Boyer, who's the senior editor, Will Dobson, the managing editor, and Jeff Marn, the media relations manager. I also want to especially thank Carolyn Wadhams, a senior policy analyst here at the center who has been the spark plug for this survey and has done the lion's share of the work on our end to help make this project happen. Uh, we've assembled a great panel today. We're honored to have three of our survey participants here as panelists, uh, Paul Piller, Steve Simon, and Jim Wolsey. Uh, but I'm going to introduce them in, in a bit, but I want to tell you a little bit more about the Terrorism Index. About two years ago, Foreign Policy and the Center uh, teamed up to create this index, a comprehensive survey of top national security and terrorism experts uh, from across the ideological spectrum. This is the third installment that the Center and Foreign Policy have pulled together, and we hope to continue to carry out the survey to assess progress on these issues in the future. The idea for the index uh, came out of uh, frustration with the lack of transparency surrounding the fight against international terrorism, as well as the rhetoric of the so-called war on terror, which seemed to obfuscate more than enlighten our country's goals and progress in this fight. Uh, the index emerged from our desire to answer some fundamental questions about the fight against international terrorist networks, uh, including who is the enemy and what do they want? Uh, is the U.S. government's counterterrorism strategy effective? What does our strategy, uh, where does our strategy need to change? How does the war on terror fit with our larger national security framework? Thus, we set out to answer these questions by turning to professionals who have the most knowledge about terrorism and national security issues uh, for their opinions. The 108 experts who participated in this survey include high-profile Republicans and Democrats, including former Secretary of State Lawrence Eagleburger and Madeleine Albright, uh, Anthony Lake, the former National Security Advisor, Slade Gordon, who's a former Senator from Washington State and a 9-11 Commissioner, and many other experts from the military, intelligence, and academic communities. It's an impressive group, and we greatly appreciate uh, their willingness to participate uh, in this survey. Uh, unfortunately, the survey results for this installment are not encouraging. The experts are more pessimistic than ever before about the state of U.S. national security. Ninety-one percent of the experts believe the world is growing more dangerous for Americans. That's up from 81 percent when we did this survey six months ago. And 84 percent believe we're not winning the war on terrorism compared to 75% in January. Seven in 10 think a terrorist attack on the scale of 9-11 is likely to happen in the next five years. Uh, the war in Iraq appears to be driving a lot of this pessimism. 92% of the experts believe that the war in Iraq has had a negative impact on our national security. By a three to one margin, experts say that the war in Iraq is the primary reason 
for the precarious state of the world today, an assessment that crosses the ideological spectrum, which is, I think, one of the most interesting findings of the survey. When asked about the effectiveness of the U.S. troop surge in Iraq, 83% of experts, including 64% of conservatives, said that troop surge in Iraq is either having a negative impact or no impact at all on U.S. national security. I should note that most of the participants in the survey took the survey uh, in June or in early July, uh, and we'll ask our uh, uh, experts on, on the panel this morning whether they think that the timing of the, of the survey may have had some impact on, the, on that particular result. The experts also point to a number of national security concerns that deserve thinking, uh, including U.S. policies uh, toward Iran and Pakistan and even U.S. energy policy. Uh, here are a few uh, results which I found interesting. 62% of the experts believe that U.S. energy policy is having a negative impact on U.S. national security. I know my friend Jim Wolsey is going to have more to say about that uh, this morning. 74% of experts consider Pakistan to be the most likely state to transfer nuclear t uh, technology to terrorists, uh, while one in three believes Pakistan is the most likely country to become the next al-Qaeda stronghold. 83% do not think Iran's nuclear program is for civilian purposes, as Tehran claims, but only 8% favored military strikes on Iran's nuclear facilities. 8 in 10 believe the United States should use sanctions and diplomatic talks to negotiate an end to Iran's nuclear program. Uh, in a minute, I'm going to turn uh, things over to Moises Naim, uh, editor-in-chief of Foreign Policy magazine, who will say a bit more about the survey. But before I do, let me tell you a bit about our panelists. Their detailed bios are in their folder. You know, most of you in the audience know them. Uh, I'm just going to be very brief in this. But uh, Paul Pillar is on the Faculty of Security Studies uh, in the School of Foreign Service at Georgetown University. He retired in 2005 from a 28-year uh, career in the U.S. intelligence community from 2000 to 2005. He worked as the National Intelligence Officer for the Near East and South Asia, where he was considered the agency's lead analyst on counterterrorism. Steve Simon is a senior fellow for Middle Eastern Studies at the Council on Foreign Relations. Prior to the Council, Steve worked at RAND and the International Institute for Strategic Studies from 1994 to 1999. He also served at the White House as Director of Global Issues and Senior Director for Transnational Threats, where he was involved in U.S. counterterrorism policy and operations, as well as security policy in the Near East and South Asia. Jim Woolsey is Vice President at Boozam Allen Hamilton, where he works with the firm's global resilience clients. Before joining Booz Allen, uh, Jim served in the U.S. government on five different occasions where he held presidential appointments in two Republican and two Democratic administrations. Uh, during his 12 years of government service, uh, Jim held many important positions, including the Director of Central Intelligence from 1993 to 1995, and Ambassador to the Negotiation on Conventional Armed Forces in Europe. Vienna and Undersecretary of Navy. Uh, we're honored to have those three experts with us here today. I'm going to turn uh, the mic over to Moises, who will make a few remarks, and then we're going to try to just have a dialogue up here and then open things up for questions from the audience in a little bit. Moises. Thanks, John, and uh, good morning, and thank you for being here. I, I just want to say that uh, for foreign policy, this collaboration with the Center for American Progress has been wonderful. The results speak for themselves. Uh, uh, this is our second, third year. We're going to continue to do it. And again, the impulse behind uh, this effort was to try to bring uh, some clarity and, and, and transparency to the conversation. We were very keen in ensuring that the, uh, the, the 
partisanship and the politicization of the debate uh, were not part of, of, of our survey. And therefore, we made a, a very deliberate effort that in our sample we have all views expressed and all perspectives and all uh, uh, angles of the debate. And so one of the surprises uh, of the results is even though we forced the diversity of the sample, uh, the responses uh, are quite convergent. So that's one of the first, and I don't want to go through the details. Uh, you, I think uh, uh, John did a wonderful job in summarizing the highlights uh, of the results. You have the, the, the survey there uh, in your hands or in the magazine outside. So I will not want to waste time just uh, going through the, the results in, in, in detail. But the central theme that goes through all of their answers is the significant level of agreement that experts from very different perspectives have on what's going on. And I think that's very revealing. Um, I also want to join uh, John in thanking our colleagues uh, at the Center for American Progress and Foreign Policy magazine that have done this. These, these things don't happen uh, just uh, because somebody thinks about them. It, they happen because there's lots of smart people that spend uh, lots of time working on, on them. And, and John already mentioned the names of our colleagues that deserve recognition for the, for the successful effort. And what we were thinking of doing with you today is not uh, to have the traditional panel discussion where, you know, each participant is giving 10 minutes or so to, to, to make an initial presentation, but rather have a very active in conversation with you and with them and have uh, uh, exchange of views and change the subjects and disagree and, and bring different perspectives and encourage your participation in the conversation. So uh, with that, let me just start with the first question. And, and inevitably, the first question is that the same group of people were surveyed uh, six, just six months ago. And uh, six months ago, the results were uh, concerning uh, a world that uh, is dangerous to the United States. Uh, um, there's a 10 percentage point increase in the perception of risk and threat and danger in just uh, uh, six months. So what happened uh, uh, in these six months? Why don't you, Jim, why don't you start with that? Tell us what in your perception could have driven this uh, uh, heightened anxiety about risks in just six months? Um, I don't know, but I think it was unrealistically low before, and it may still be unrealistically low. Um, I think a... 81%. Uh, hmm? Yes. 91% now. Well, 91 may be realistic. Uh, uh, 100 would be more accurate, I think. <laughs> uh, I think the chance of uh, something at least as serious as 9-11 uh, is uh, about as close to sure as uh, things get in international relations. Uh, my uh, great hope is that it not be uh, a nuclear a weapon or biological weapon or uh, or something like taking down the electricity grid, uh, all of which would be far more devastating uh, even than 9-11. Than uh, I think that uh, we will be in this war for decades. I think it has uh, old roots uh, going back into the history of Islam, going back into the the uh, way the Arab world was treated at the end of World War I, uh, going back into a lot of things, our own behavior in the 70s, uh, 80s, and, and 90s, which tended to compromise between turning the other cheek on the one hand and starting to do something fecklessly and then backing off uh, on the other. 
Um, so uh, I think there are uh, a number of reasons why uh, uh, this is uh, not uh, likely to go away. And the two things that we are doing right now to enable it are, first of all, paying for it, as Tom Friedman continually points out. Uh, this is all oil money, uh, much of it uh, from the Islamist uh, perspective coming either uh, through uh, Iran uh, uh, and their work with Hezbollah, Hamas, etc., or uh, from Saudi Arabia in one way or another through one route uh, or another. And uh, uh, so every uh, billion dollars a day, by the way, that we borrow from the world uh, to finance our oil habit uh, pays for this. And the other thing that uh, memory, the Mideast Media Research Institute is now making uh, clear in its uh, releases is that we are hosting in the United States the websites for essentially all of the jihadi websites. And I'm not just talking about political statements. I'm talking about detailed instructions on how to attack American military bases. Um, so the combination of our uh, generosity uh, with respect to uh, uh, funding uh, the other side in the terrorist war and uh, our uh, the way we run the, the web um, is uh, um, really bringing to mind uh, the old uh, line of uh, Walt Kelly and Pogo, we have met the enemy, and he is us. Uh, maybe let uh, the other panelists, Steve or uh, Paul, respond a little bit to that question, and I'll take the next one. Uh, well, I was part of the 81% six months ago, as well as the 91% <laughs> this time, so I you know, can't speak for myself. But I, I, think, I think the answer to the question is there wasn't any one event development overseas. Uh, rather, it was a matter of more passage of time against the backdrop of a perception that we aren't on the right track and we aren't solving the problem. And with any kind of problem, whether it's terrorism or anything else, if that's the situation and more time goes by, one gets cemented in one's pessimism. The only thing I would add to that is you can't get away from Iraq and the Iraq war. And I think there was, before we got into this debate this summer about you know, how well the surge is working and so on, earlier this spring, about you know, over the first three or four months of this year, there seemed to be a noticeable uh, shift or an acceleration uh, in a shift of opinion against the war, uh, particularly with regard to congressional leaders, especially on the Republican side. And I suspect some of that 10% shift uh, reflects that as well. Uh, let me, let me uh, grab the next question. We're going to do this a little bit uh, old meet the press style, Lawrence Spieback style, where <laughs> Moises and I are going to kind of bounce back and forth uh, in, in the questions. Uh, I think that, that uh, I do want to get to Moises uh, reminding this board that we, that this is a problem that's global in scale that uh, has uh, 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 many tentacles and we don't want to just get completely focused on Iraq, but I think uh, given the, uh, events of uh, the week, the GAO report, uh, General Petraeus and, and Brian Crocker's report that will be with us next week, the president's trip. It's important to, I, I think, uh, at least ask the question. Uh, I, I, I mentioned in my opening comments that the survey was largely done uh, in late June and early July. Uh, do things look different uh, with respect to the surge because more time uh, has gone on and we know a little bit more about what the situation on the ground is, uh, or do you think the experts are reflecting something that is uh, 
is is more profound uh, uh, about really whether there's been any uh, strategic change uh, as a result of the of whatever tactical success has been achieved by the surge. Why don't I start with you, Paul, and then we'll just go down the, the list. Uh, po possibly the timing has something to do with it. I think it's much more the tactical versus the strategic, and I don't think anyone has denied. Uh, that even before the current surge, even going to uh, you know, previous shifts in U.S. deployments uh, inside Iraq last year and the year before, that you put a bunch of uh, troops, you increase your troop strength in a particular area, in this case it's more the capital of Baghdad, uh, you're going to have a positive effect in being able to secure at least you know some of the ground that you hope to secure. I don't think anyone denies that, but when it is simply on a more strategic level, more of the same, as I think you know, what the president announced in January was, in my view, correctly perceived by many people, more of the same of an overall approach and an overall policy that in so many ways reflected in this survey uh, has had negative effects, particularly with regard to indirect effects on, on the terrorist threat we face, that the conclusion with a strategic point of view has to be, no, it hasn't helped, it's, uh, it's simply hurt. Sometimes. Is the mic on? I think so. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, sometimes your tactical successes can compound strategic problems, and this is what's at work with the surge right now, because, uh, as Paul pointed out, the concentration of U.S. forces locally has stemmed violence in those areas where force has been concentrated, but that's had the effect of squeezing the violence out into other areas and essentially widening the pattern of violence in Iraq in a way that uh, over time has further weakened national cohesion. So uh, all in all, um, it's not been successful on that score. Um, but also strategically, uh, the surge was supposed to provide the space in which the government in Baghdad would pursue a program of reconciliation. That uh, has happened, and it hasn't happened largely because we made up the word reconciliation and imposed it on the poor Iraqis, like we've imposed so much else on <laughs> poor Iraqis, and um, uh, they have resisted applying uh, in the process their own definitions uh, to reconciliation, and for the Shia, a reconciliation uh, in this instance means justice, or at any rate, reconciliation must be preceded by justice. They are not going willingly uh, to give up their claims to justice. Uh, for the Sunnis, uh, reconciliation means restoration, in effect. And for the Kurds, uh, reconciliation means uh, the status quo will continue to obtain for them. Uh, they'll have their autonomy, and uh, they will also have oil. Uh, none of these definitions of reconciliation aligns very well with the U.S. definition of reconciliation, so the whole thing has been kind of a silly exercise. As uh, Joe and I said to Kissinger when asked about the effects of the French Revolution, it's too soon to tell. Uh, I, uh, I think the... Uh, key thing um, is whether or not Iraqis begin to see some security in their individual daily lives, and clearly that is happening more in uh, Anbar and some uh, nearby places, 
Uh, a large part of that uh, has to do with the changed relationship with the local uh, sheikhs beginning to work through them instead of against them. And anyone who knew the history of that part of the world would have said that should have started uh, a long time ago. But uh, General Petraeus deserves a lot of credit, I think, for using his forces in such a way as to begin to help make that uh, begin to happen. Uh, I think the key thing is not whether the three major groups in Iraq reconcile or start to like one another, uh, but whether they can hammer out uh, an oil law that allocates enough to the Sunni segments, since the Kurds and Shia already have a good deal of oil, uh, which enough for the Sunnis that they are willing to coexist. I think that, uh, I don't know whether to call it a soft federalism or whatever, but I don't know that there needs to be a great deal of central authority in Baghdad. And uh, if uh, one uh, can, uh, with the progress that's been made uh, so far uh, by General Petraeus, begin to see an expansion of what's happened in, in Anbar, and at least people standing down, and enough oil through some sort of compromise allocated uh, uh, for the Sunnis, one could have a reasonably decentralized uh, state uh, that uh, was uh, uh, not a disaster. At this point, that would, I think, be regarded as a, a relative uh, success. Quite a part, and that's not what number of people envisioned originally. Uh, it's not what is, it's not reconciliation. It's not what uh, is compatible with uh, a lot of the rhetoric, including some of my own, about the importance and possibility of democracy in uh, Iraq. Uh, but it could work. And I just don't think we know yet. I, I like uh, Steve's uh, taxonomy of, of reconciliation and uh, how it means different things to different groups, and how it, it has an element of uh, imposing a cultural dimension in what's not. Because for many, um, reconciliation is nothing but power. For others, reconciliation is nothing but oil. If I, uh, this is not about a dispute that has to do with uh, liking or not liking the other part. This is, in many instances, a dispute about who is going to control a pile of money that is out there. So it's about who is going to control the levers of power in the country. And uh, for many of them, uh, it's just waiting and getting to the uh, pot of gold that is at the end of that waiting game. And so there's nothing to reconcile. If I just wait, I'll end up controlling one of the largest reserves of oil in the world. And so it's not about liking or reconciling or having almost a spiritual uh, uh, rapprochement with the other part. It's, it's that I just want to grab uh, a chunk of power or a chunk of oil. And, and uh, in that respect, uh, I, I also wanted to ask you that one of the, the, the central themes of why the Iraq war is so important and needs to be won uh, by the administration and others is that it has regional consequences, that a withdrawal, a defeat uh, of the United States has domino-like effects. And, you know, the, the, the line that, you know, we're fighting them there, not to fight them here, 
and if we uh, leave, they're gonna chase us. Uh, the enemy will follow us home. Um, an overwhelming majority in the survey doesn't think that's the case. Most of the experts uh, in our survey don't think that uh, the enemy will follow us home. So I wanted to ask the, anyone in the panel uh, if you believe that uh, how much how much are they going to follow us home. Uh, if the United States withdraws, I think we're going to have to fight here regardless of how well or how poorly things uh, go in Iraq. I think it's a snare and a delusion to believe that we're not going to have to fight here and that we're not going to face uh, uh, at, at least uh, a replay of uh, 9-11. I, uh, I do think that because they see themselves as having succeeded in some combination, Sunni, Shia, different people had different roles, of having driven us out of uh, Beirut in uh, uh, 83, out of Mogadishu in 93, uh, uh, but driven the Soviets out of Afghanistan in the 80s. Uh, they see the West in general uh, as quitters. And when they don't quit, they do something feckless, like drop, put a, shoot a few cruise missiles into an empty building in the middle of the night. Uh, so I think our reputation for weakness and fecklessness uh, is plenty big in that part of the world, uh, even without uh, pulling out, even before, regardless of what happens in uh, Iraq. But I do believe that this is an honor and shame uh, uh, culture we're dealing with, and uh, that they believe uh, uh, they can uh, uh, shame us uh, uh, in a big way by uh, uh, having an outcome which leaves, uh, let's say, Al-Qaeda in Iraq with a base of operations in Anbar and uh, Iran with decisive influence in the South. They what would be an outcome that inoculates uh, the United States against that, against the culture of shame and honor uh, triggering uh, what would be an, an American outcome or an outcome that well, would prevent? The one I described earlier, I think, helps some, but it doesn't free us from needing to defend against another 9-11. The, the, the notion of a lightly federal state, uh, which, I mean, obviously, culturally, it's completely different, but Switzerland does not have a strong central government. Uh, it's possible it still to still be very anti-American, right? Well, uh, I don't know. Uh, it, it the Kurds won't be probably uh, with the Sunni and the Shia. We'd have to see, but uh, uh, if they aren't uh, engaged in a very large-scale civil war, and if the Iraqi Shia Arabs assert themselves to a degree against the Iranians, uh, uh, and uh, Al Qaeda isn't running Anbar. Uh, that's a better outcome from the point of view of not encouraging uh, uh, the terrorism, but I think we're going to have to deal with the terrorism anyway. Um, yeah, I agree. I agree with the first thing that Jim Woolsey said that uh, we're facing a threat here in the homeland, regardless of how Iraq comes out. You know, this business about following us home—it's it's really become more of a slogan than an argument, and I've, I haven't really heard the logic uh, explained too much. Um, it's uh, it's as if terrorists were polite enough, to, you know, to have the courtesy to fight us only one place at a time, or as, uh, as Steve's former boss uh, Dick Clark has put it, it, this is likening terrorists to puppy dogs who will you know, 
follow you home when you pick up a stray. You know, they aren't like that. Um, and the the business about, well, fight them there rather than fight them here it makes the mistake, which I thought none other than uh, Secretary Rumsfeld had dispelled some time ago when he asked the very important question, are we you know, generating more terrorists if, you know, faster than we're killing them off? You don't have a fixed number of bad guys out there. You know, we're always going to be just in Iraq or just in the United States or just in Europe, someplace else. You know, one of the unfortunate effects of Iraq is reflected in, in the judgments in this survey has been uh, the pie has increased, as the economist would put it. Um, the overall level of antipathy toward the United States, part of which is reflected in extremist violence and the willingness of people to do, do us harm through terrorist methods, has increased. Um, there are two other distinctions I want to, well, one distinction and one kind of uh, historical uh, comparison. The distinction that gets lost in a lot of the debate and rhetoric about will they follow us home, what are the other consequences, some of which you mentioned, uh, in terms of regional fallout, we have to ask ourselves how much of this that we fear would happen no matter when we get out, you know, whether it's over the next six months or two years from now or four years from now, how much different will it be later on after more expenditure of blood and treasure versus, you know, uh, whether we versus doing it sooner. That's the real policy question, the thing that needs to be debated. And the comparison is with Afghanistan and, and the role that it played uh, during the jihad against the Soviets uh, in the 1980s. And we're still feeling the effects of that today. Uh, it was a wonderful uh, networking opportunity for jihadists and Islamists of various nationalities. It was a training ground in terms of acquiring the skills with firearms and munitions and so on that could be put to terrorist purposes. And it was a tremendous inspiration, defeating and indeed leading, helping to lead to the disintegration of one superpower. Now Iraq is the biggest and most salient jihad. And it unfortunately is serving some of the same functions, the effects of which will be felt years from now, regardless of what we do as our policy choices over the next several months or next next year. And in addition to that, it has provided uh, a propaganda bonanza uh, for the likes of al-Qaeda and the jihadists in playing to all of the uh, worst aspects of uh, the bin Laden-style doctrine that the United States allegedly is out to occupy Muslim lands, kill their people, and exploit their resources. None of which, of course, is true in terms of our actual intent, uh, but that's how it's seen. Uh, well, Paul sh uh, shifted our focus from al-Qaeda in Iraq to al-Qaeda in Waziristan, so I want to stay with that for uh, for a second. Uh, I noted the, the, these arrests this morning in Germany. Uh, this is a preliminary report on television, so we'll find out whether it's true, but there was some at least early reporting that the, the people arrested were trained in Pakistan. And I think one of the interesting uh, findings in the survey was uh, the bleak uh, view that people felt about Pakistan, both from the potential of being uh, of being the most likely place to transfer nuclear technology uh, to uh, a potential uh, into potential terrorist hands, uh, as well as uh, a significant number of people who thought that uh, Pakistan would become the next safe haven uh, for terrorists uh, to operate, and maybe it already is in, in, in many people's mind. Uh, but there, there's quite a bit of activity now on, on the political front in Pakistan, and I, I guess I just would 
uh, like maybe to start with Steve and then ask Paul and Jim what, what their take is on what's happening there uh, today with uh, with uh, President Musharraf, with Benazir Bhutto going, uh, you know, uh, about to go back to Pakistan and, and the political situation, the violence that's on the streets today, what's what's the likelihood of uh, a stable uh, Pakistan uh, being with us six months from now? I think six months from now you'll probably see a stable Pakistan, and as much as Pakistan is stable, um, uh, Benazir Bhutto is not the only returnee. Uh, Nawaz Sharif is also returning. Um, uh, all these politicians uh, have well-deserved reputations, indeed well-cultivated reputations, as being um, uh, feckless opportunists uh, whose uh, primary interest is in their enrichment and not, that is their self-enrichment, and not the betterment of Pakistan or Pakistan's stability. Um, I'm being generous, of course. Um, <laughs> ask me later what I really think. Um, you know, the core commanders uh, in Pakistan appear to be uh, loyal. Uh, that is, uh, they appear to be loyal to the state, uh, such as it is. Uh, this is a good thing. Uh, it's especially important that the Ralpindi Corps commander um, be in this mode, and people believe that he is. So uh, the chances of a complete collapse, um, uh, at least in the near to medium term, are, are highly unlikely. There is, I think, justified concern about uh, the junior officer corps and the degree and the degree to which the majors and captains in the Pakistani army are immune uh, to um, uh, uh, radical influence. That's a concern uh, not just for the future; it's a concern for the nearer term because. Uh, it is uh, important to know in advance whether the troops will shoot in the streets if you order them out into the streets to shoot. Um, uh, there's an early indicator that things are holding in that regard in the way in which the Red Mosque siege was handled um, uh, by uh, Pakistani forces. Now, you know, the bigger picture, of course, is that Pakistan is fighting all these wars at once. It's got a civil war in Baluchistan. It's got uh, a secessionist movement uh, in the Northwest, and it's still dealing with a Kashmir problem. This is an overburdened uh, country with uh, an underqualified leadership. Uh, that's bad. Uh, the centrifugal forces are bad and probably going to be difficult to control over the longer term. Now, whether nuclear material devices or what have you get transferred uh, to terrorists, well, I guess that, that is a concern. And we'll really want to have, for the foreseeable future, as strong a central government in Pakistan as we can manage among uh, all these adverse factors. I would just uh, uh, add that uh, for the war on terrorism, the key thing, seems to me, is for the leadership, Musharraf in the present case, to broaden his political base as much as possible in order to be able to pursue the war on terrorism 
as it exists, uh, as it's confined to Pakistan right now. And, you know, this is crucial because of the links between Pakistan and a number of serious conspiracies that have emerged in Europe over the past year and a half. Um, Al-Qaeda uh, is very well established in Waziristan, and there are indications that bin Laden or the War Council, or however you want to phrase it, is aiming to develop a kind of expeditionary force <clears throat> of European-born uh, or European-raised uh, South Asian and other Muslims. And uh, this is a problem that uh, has already emerged, as I've indicated, and will get worse, it seems to me, in the coming years. Uh, just a couple of observations to... Uh, what Steve said, you know, Pakistan in its um, three, uh, seven decades of uh, independence has historically fluctuated between periods of military and civilian rule where one or the other is in power for several years before Pakistanis get uh, sufficiently disillusioned and disgusted with uh, the current set of rulers and then the cycle goes to the other direction. And both sides, the civilian leadership and the military leadership, have demonstrated uh, ample reason for the uh, Pakistanis to get disillusioned. Um, Steve drew attention to some of the uh, more pecuniary motives of the civilian leadership. I'd call your attention to uh, an item in Foreign Policy Magazine, the current issue, uh, a review article of a book about the Pakistani military's uh, economic activities and how much uh, that seems to be designed to, uh, among other things, uh, maintain a comfortable lifestyle for the uh, senior uh, leadership. So I think what we're seeing, we're, we're near the end of one of the military rule cycles, and we're going to cycle into something uh, where the civilian leadership, uh, whether it's Benazir Bhutto or Nawaz Sharif or, or someone else who emerges, um, will have be exerting more, uh, more power over the next year or two. Uh, the other point is looking at this as a U.S. foreign policy problem, and I think the the indecision or indecisiveness reflected in the poll results that was mentioned uh, reflects the inherent uh, dilemmas and trade-offs and difficulties that our policymakers face when they look at Pakistan and the stakes that we, we the U.S., has there. There's the nuclear weapons issue, control over nuclear weapons. There's the whole Pakistani-Indian relationship, the standoff with another nuclear weapons power. There's the problem of Waziristan and uh, radicals running around in the federally administered tribal areas. There's the overall problem of political stability, and there's the issue of um, uh, human rights and democracy. These are all important things. They don't all point in the same direction. I personally have a lot of sympathy for our policymakers uh, and sometimes cringe at some of the criticism directed against them, including directed against the Bush administration, for having to juggle all these interests. And uh, there are trade-offs even in the counter-terrorist area between, say, the short-term one of leaning on Musharraf to do more about the Waziristan problem, uh, but Musharraf's our guy to do it, versus uh, the longer-term consideration of what kind of political system in Pakistan might be less likely to breed future extremists, perhaps a more democratic one. Uh, the policy dilemmas abound. Let me ask you to help us understand uh, a contradiction or even paradox in the results um, of the survey. Most of the respondents are very, very critical of uh, the very controversial intelligence uh, policies, practices, rendition, 
detention of terrorist uh, suspects at Guantanamo, domestic surveillance, all of what you know are the very hot issues that are being debated. So there's strong criticism uh, against those policies and practices. But then there is uh, um, great recognition about the role of the intelligence agencies that practice them. Uh, in the survey, the respondents uh, rank very high, uh, the NSA and the CIA and, and other intelligence agencies. So could it be that there is, are, are we facing a little bit of hypocrisy here? in which, you know, you denounce uh, the policies, but you uh, congratulate the people executing the policies? How do you explain the, the, the variance between these two responses? Jim. Well, um, I think a lot of people recognize that in circumstances of great difficulty, the intelligence agencies and the Bureau uh, have a lot of people in them who are working hard to try to keep from having another 9-11 or worse. Uh, and uh, uh, there's a certain sense, I think, of, uh, of uh, admiration for that, and, and I think uh, uh, justifiably so. Uh, a lot of the shortcomings, certainly not all, of the intelligence agencies in the Bureau uh, leading up uh, to 9-11 uh, were the result of policy decisions that uh, people had made uh, going back into the 70s. Uh, the most famous is the barrier between the folks working on criminal matters, including terrorism, and those working on counterintelligence, uh, even talking to one another. And you can see in some of the recent reports uh, of uh, the CIA not informing the FBI of this and not informing the FBI, they were doing what was being done within the FBI of one part not informing the other, and the reason was policies had been adopted to do that uh, to, for civil liberties reasons, some of it going back to FISA in its original version, uh, some of it uh, having to do with uh, the decisions that were made in the 90s. Uh, so they have uh, actually, uh, a lot of them, worked very hard and done some very able things uh, in the face of, of uh, difficulty and in the face of uh, having some of the techniques that they've used, whether it's interrogation or rendition or whatever, uh, increasingly uh, uh, called into question. So I don't, I don't see it as uh, as uh, hypocrisy. Uh, I I think uh, these policies are. We can take them one by one. They are controversial. Uh, I'm in favor of some of them, not in favor of others. Uh, but uh, whatever you think about those, I think you have to admit that the life of uh, uh, an FBI agent or a CIA ops officer uh, these days uh, working on uh, terrorism uh, issues has got to be an extraordinarily uh, a difficult one and one that most of us, I think, ought to be pleased we have people who will uh, undertake uh, that kind of uh, effort. There's no hypocrisy or uh, contradiction at all. That those agencies don't make the policies that are controversial. Whatever NSA does in the way of uh, controversial intercept practices and so on reflects policies that were made in the White House or the Office of Vice President. Uh, the Attorney General was involved and so on. Likewise, whatever CIA does in the way of uh, activities that may come under covert action findings are specifically directed and authorized uh, by the President uh, through those findings. So it's one is a matter of uh, agencies doing their business and work is assigned. The other is an issue of, of uh, policy, which is not for those agencies to decide. 
I, uh, uh, I, this part of the discussion leads me to ask our, uh, our experts on the panel a question we didn't ask in the survey, which is to grade on the curve. Uh, uh, we uh, again, I note the the arrests in Denmark and Germany. Uh, are our European colleagues uh, the the assessment of the experts is relatively bleak in terms of the our, our ability uh, to counter uh, the terrorist network threat? Are our European colleagues getting this more right? Are they uh, you know have the uh, policies that have been adopted uh, in in Europe, uh, which is a, a, some to some extent a similar mix and to some extent not? Uh, uh, different, or is this fundamentally an assessment again uh, leading back to uh, the the strategic failure of the uh, war in Iraq? Paul, uh, maybe Steve would be better. Well, our European colleagues have a very serious problem because the demographic changes in Europe and the particular way in which uh, they have come about uh, have introduced uh, a certain threat uh, domestically uh, uh, within Western Europe that we really uh, don't have here, at least in the same way, and at least yet. Um, I think, uh, you know, over time they'll have to adopt uh, a kind of, um, I don't know, Israeli approach to the problem, which uh, they sum up in the phrase, mowing the grass. I think it's a brilliant metaphor, actually. Um, the Europeans are not going to be winning uh, any major or total victory in the war against terrorism precisely because of the uh, long-term social dynamics that are playing out in their country, but they will have to mow the grass. Over time, they'll get better at it. Uh, bear in mind that European services, like our own really, um, both on the law enforcement and, and intelligence side, are not used to dealing with this particular adversary. Uh, the uh, British, for example, are used to dealing, or became used over many years, to dealing with an IRA threat and, um, uh, you know, doing a lot of work in the counterintelligence area against the Soviets with respect to the IRA. You know, you had one bunch of doughy white guys infiltrating another bunch of doughy white guys. Okay, so, um, you know, they managed. Uh, even there, it took them 80 years. Um, uh, to deal with a relatively small number of uh, killers. Um, so, you know, the problem that the European services face now is all that much harder because of the inter-ethnic differences that are both a symptom and a cause of uh, the problem they face. Europeans do have a bigger problem, I agree. Uh, partially it's demographic. Uh, uh, partially it's the uh, cohesive nature of some of the immigrant groups like some of the Pakistani uh, areas in uh, in Britain uh, which we really don't don't uh, see nearly as much here most uh, uh, American Muslims and Arabs are integrated far better into American life than is the case in Europe on the other hand the Europeans uh, are unconstrained by uh, uh, things even close to our Bill of Rights, uh, and Britain preventive detention, for example, is, uh, uh, one argues, how many months, but uh, but it's, uh, it's they don't have to go through the business of uh, 
people being material witnesses and conspiracy theory and so forth the way uh, the way we do. And uh, there's no way to say habeas corpus with a French accent. Uh, if you uh, look at the continent uh, and these investigating magistrates and the power that they have uh, on areas like this, it's something that is absolutely stunning to uh, anybody who's uh, ever uh, studied constitutional law in the United States. Uh, so uh, he, he, the Europeans, uh, 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 particularly when they, some of them, uh, lecture us about uh, civil liberties issues in, in the war on terror, uh, I'd suggest everyone uh, just have a, a brief read of the Code of Napoleon. You'll, uh, you'll see what they can do. Before, before we turn the, the floor to, to you and your questions and comments, uh, I, I want to ask that the three experts uh, about their views on the change and continuity on the larger uh, war on terror. Uh, there's no doubt that any new administration would want to revise, adjust, reform the approaches uh, that the Bush administration has taken to the war on terror. What do you see as the elements that will have strong continuity and the likeliest targets for change and reform of what the United States is currently doing in fighting terror? So let's start perhaps with all the the things that come immediately to mind that should be, will be uh, elements of continuity, uh, the greatly increased uh, emphasis since 9-11 on aspects of homeland security. We all know the problems that our Department of Homeland Security has, has faced, but there's no question that in terms of defensive security countermeasures, particularly with regard to things like aviation security, uh, we are safer in that regard than we were prior to 9-11. Much has been written, I think, very valid about so much more that needs to be done with regard to port security and so on. But the whole basic homeland defensive security countermeasures area, I think, area of continuity. The other big area of continuity, which really is one where we were doing a lot before 9-11, even though it wasn't visible or not known, is the uh, the cell-by-cell, terrorist-by-terrorist, day-to-day work that the likes of our intelligence uh, and law enforcement services do in trying to break up terrorist infrastructures. Most of it doesn't get publicized. Um, most of it uh, is such that the successes are hard to um, identify in the sense of, you know, we avoided a bombing next Tuesday against the U.S. Embassy. But nonetheless, it's important work that's been going on for many years, and that has to continue. In terms of what needs most to be changed, I think that gets into areas that go beyond what most people consider, you know, war on terror, capital W, capital T, but rather larger aspects of U.S. foreign policy, some of which have been tapped by the survey that involve Iraq, that involve U.S. relations with the Muslim world, and that are far broader than um, uh, that come under that label. But nonetheless, in my judgment, uh, will have at least as much effect as the things I've just mentioned on the degree of terrorist threat that American citizens will face five years from now and ten years from now. I agree with Paul on the well on, on everything Paul has said <laughs> since we've since we've begun, but uh, particularly on the last point about the way in which uh, our Counterterrorism policy is likely to be better situated, uh, or better integrated, rather, with uh, our foreign policy. the The bureaucracy in the Bush administration, particularly uh, in the intelligence community, has understood the need to better integrate these things. Um, and I, I think, in some theoretical sense, this has been understood at the White House as well, but uh, it's been impossible actually 
to do this. The only uh, minor point I, I would raise, maybe a gloss on what uh, Paul has said, is that one thing that we will continue to need, but probably not have, no matter who was in the White House, uh, is uh, a deployable door-kicking capability. This has been a, a vexing problem, well, going back at, at least uh, 15 years or, or maybe more. But um, I, I mentioned in, in this respect uh, the uh, reporting by Mark Mazzetti in the New York Times a little while ago about an aborted raid that was to have taken place in Pakistan uh, that would have targeted Ayman Azawahiri, who we know is uh, bin Laden's right-hand man. Uh, the U.S. military, the Defense Department, uh, got the order to pull together the raid, um, but at the end of the day, the package that they put together uh, would have been enough uh, to uh, invade the Soviet Union. I mean, it was like Barbarossa, and uh, the White House correctly said, well, no, we're not going to do this because we actually don't want to destroy the Musharraf government in the process of getting Ayman as a Wahiri. And the question arises, why didn't we have a small package we could actually send in something that would be useful? Anyway, this has been a vexing problem for a long time. It's not going to change, but one hopes it would. I think the single most important thing for us to do, it's going to take a while, but we need to get started really hard, is to stop uh, paying for the war on terrorism. And we borrow a billion dollars a day. Uh, two-thirds of what we borrow that uh, for, for just for oil. Uh, two-thirds of the proven reserves in the world are in the Persian Gulf. This part of the world, 22 Arab states plus Iran, Bernard Lewis points out, have a population about that of the U.S. and Canada. And those 23 states export to the world, other than oil and a little bit of gas, export to the world less than Finland, a country of 5 million people. Everything is paid for from this part of the comes from this part of the world uh, by oil. Uh, we uh, uh, have got to change that and change it fast. Uh, a century ago, salt was a strategic commodity. It mattered whether your country had salt mines. People fought wars over salt mines. There's been a book written about this recently, a very good one. Um, electrification and refrigeration changed that because it destroyed salt's strategic role as the only way to be able to preserve food, and particularly meat, for long periods of time. Now you had refrigeration, and so nobody cared where salt came from. It's still useful. You still buy it and sell it. But nobody dominates this region because he has salt mines anymore. We have to do that to oil. We have to destroy it as a strategic commodity. doesn't mean we won't use it for, for chemical plants and for some purposes. It's a useful substance. But we've got to get going on that. We've got to get going on it hard, fast, with massive dedication. And uh, it will take a while, but not quite as long as the pessimists uh, uh, suggest. And we can talk about it later if you want. I think we're going to uh, turn things uh, open to questions from the audience. We'll take a, uh, s uh, several questions. One of the things that uh, didn't come up, well, Paul sort of raised it uh, in, in the context of how we, uh, uh, of our overall national security posture uh, is the Middle East peace process and how central you think that is to 
uh, resolution, uh, long-term success in uh, what uh, our expert panelists picked as the most one of the most important things over the over a ten-year time horizon, which is uh, win- winning the hearts and minds of the Muslim world. I, I, I guess I'd like to ask, just as as we get the microphone ready to ask your questions, do you think it's possible to win the hearts and minds of the Muslim world, and how central uh, is uh, changing the U.S. Uh, posture to, and, and playing a more constructive role on the uh, Palestinian-Israeli uh, question uh, central to that enterprise. Playing a more constructive and energetic role is very important to that enterprise. I don't think we can judge the result in terms of winning or losing. You know, it's, it's a matter of degree. Uh, and I salute uh, the Secretary of State in her apparent uh, desire and at least the effort she's made so far um, uh, that seem to recognize that. Uh, yeah, I think it's uh, also very important. Winning hearts and minds is going to take a long time. I think everybody understands that. The motifs and images that dominate uh, the imagination of Muslims, particularly uh, Arab uh, Muslims, go back a long way. They were introduced into the region uh, by other uh, empires and prospective empires that sought to control uh, that area, in particular uh, the Nazis and then the Soviets. Um, these images entered the discourse, the conversation of elites in the region uh, a long time ago. They're pretty firmly embedded, and they're going to be very difficult to shake loose. Doing something uh, to show that uh, we uh, are aware of the plight of the Palestinians, I think, would be helpful uh, in forming uh, a better image of the U.S., or at least um, removing some of the hard edges of the images that do exist. But I, I don't think uh, mere process uh, is going to be enough to do this. I think there will have to be some results. Uh, and I, I would just add that any administration now is going to have a hard time managing this because of the role that Hamas now plays in Palestinian politics. Uh, this is going to be an enduring role and indeed a structural role. So the U.S. is going to have to figure out how to square that circle, and it's not going to be easy because the Hamas program, uh, at least that part of it uh, that uh, the U.S. finds so irritating, justifiably so, uh, is uh, also not going to uh, evaporate. Thank you. Questions? Uh, Go ahead, Jim. If you look at both uh, President Clinton's and Dennis Ross's uh, books about the closing days of the Clinton administration. You, you see the offer uh, that uh, Arafat turned down and Barack uh, uh, approved, which was 95% of the West Bank plus 3% compensation from Israeli lands, uh, billions of dollars, uh, two of the neighborhoods of the old city, a capital of the Palestinians in East Jerusalem, and on and on. Uh, now, if, if you look at what Omerit seems to be saying, it looks as if the current Israeli government would probably be willing to go along with something along those lines. The reason I think it's not going to happen is not because the United States is not putting sufficient pressure on Israel. The reason is that if a settlement like that today were implemented, no uh, safety or security would be possible for Israel under the circumstances. Israelis in the, in the West Bank would be killed. Uh, they would not be treated 
the way Palestine, the way Arab Israelis, Israeli Arabs are treated who live, let's say, in some place like Jaffa. So once you have an evolution, and it will take defunding of Hamas and Hezbollah by, uh, by Iran, it will take a lot of changes. Once you have an evolution so that an Israeli settler in uh, Hebron is as safe and secure living in a Palestinian state as an Israeli Arab is living in Jaffa and can speak freely and can worship the way he wants to work, worship the way the Arab Israeli living in Jaffa can. Once that, those changes come to the Middle East, at that point, and I believe many decades off, I think you're going to be able to have a settlement. I think the problem is not that the United States isn't leaning enough on Israel. Questions? Could you just please identify yourself? My name is Jacob Chabelle. I'm a graduate student at American University. Um, my question is directed at Mr. Wolseley. Um, after reading George Tenet's book and something you alluded to earlier, uh, the threat of nuclear terrorism seems to, to Tenet almost likely. It seems he, he said it keeps him up at night. How real of a threat do you think that is? Well, uh, nuclear in the sense of dirty bomb uh, from... Uh, Radiological material is unfortunately very easy to do with material that's easily available in the United States. And that could uh, contaminate an area, uh, uh, increase cancer risk, let's say, uh, such that it would be devastating from the point of view of the economy and national operation and so forth, but, uh, but not, would not kill uh, uh, many people. But having an actual nuclear weapon detonate um, is... I'm afraid, uh, also, although not nearly as easy as a radiological weapon, uh, a lot easier than I wish it were. Um, keep in mind that although we tested the plutonium bomb that we dropped on Nagasaki uh, at Alamogordo, we dropped uh, uh, the Hiroshima bomb, uh, a highly enriched uranium bomb, in combat over 60 years ago without one ever having been tested in the history of the world. It's a simple shotgun. Uh, a device and the plans for that are on the web. Uh, so highly enriched uranium acquired, however, uh, set off by relatively uh, uh, unsophisticated people is not an impossibility. Um, I wish it were, but it's not. And then, of course, one has the loose nukes problem of the uh, uh, old uh, Soviet nukes, uh, uh, U.S. and its allies and Luger and otherwise did a good job of, uh, of getting a lot of that material out of places like Kazakhstan. But um, for years, uh, uh, Russia has been sufficiently lawless and organized crime groups and the rest have been sufficiently prevalent that the possibility of uh, uh, small nuclear weapons uh, having been uh, bought or sold in international uh, uh, under the table commerce is cannot be uh, excluded. So I'm afraid, uh, I wish I didn't uh, share George's uh, uh, concerns about this, but I, I, I do. Uh, I think it's uh, uh, something that Al-Qaeda has gone to the trouble to get fatwas endorsing. Uh, it is, uh, I'm afraid, our number one terrorist problem. 
Uh, hi, I'm Lydia Sizer. I'm a recent graduate of Brown University, and I'm working as an intern at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. Um, I'm just wondering, how much of an effect do you think the drug trade has on um, terrorism in relation to the oil trade? Um, the, uh, there's, there's still an economic aspect to it. We're talking about Afghanistan um, and talking about the Taliban. Uh, but I, to try to make that comparison, I, I think in terms of sheer uh, dollars and or reals or whatever, and, and and ones that make their way directly or indirectly into terrorist hands, I would not put this the, the drug trade issue on anywhere near the same scale as what Jim Woolsey has already addressed with regard to the petrodollars and what that means in terms of uh, uh, indirectly in many ways, uh, supporting Middle East terrorism. So it, it is a factor with regard to South Asia and Afghanistan, uh, but I would put it as a uh, in scale much less than what was already been addressed regarding oil. Take one, two, step one. Hi, Mary Louise Kelly with NPR. I wanted to follow up. John mentioned a little bit um, the uh, thwarted attacks that we've apparently seen in announced in Germany this morning. And I had two questions, just curious what strikes y'all. It's early days, still early hours, I, I guess. But one is I was interested in that the apparent targets were hard targets, the Frankfurt Airport and Rammstein Air Force Base. And I'm curious what significance you may attach to that, that they're, as opposed to, say, train stations or softer targets, uh, metro uh, targets, for example, as we've seen in Europe. And also that the three people who've been detained appear to be two Germans and one Turk, which would speak to more of a homegrown threat, which I'll have addressed a little bit, but as opposed to this threat that we hear a lot about, about North Africans coming up or people, terrorists being exported out of Iraq and moving into Europe. Airports are, uh, you know, think of it as, as an aviation target. And aviation has been a favorite target of terrorists for a long time. Um, airports, as a subset of the aviation uh, target, also go back a long time. Remember Ahmed Rassam, the Algerian uh, who was arrested at Port Angeles uh, in context of the Millennium plot, uh, was going to attack the L.A. airport. And there was an attack. Uh, at the LA airport, I think, um, but it was a deranged gunman. Uh, it was a separate uh, incident. Uh, we have seen in Britain an attack against the airport in Glasgow. I think there's something of um, a fad or a fashion factor here, um, or a copycat. People are inspired by uh, these sorts of things, so uh, I, I'm not uh, all that uh, surprised as to the homegrown threat. Uh, converts uh, play a significant role in European uh, uh, terrorist networks, so that's uh, an ongoing factor. I think it's uh, it's cliche, but it's nonetheless true uh, that converts uh, can um, take a much harder line on their adopted religion than people who are born into it, uh, perhaps in part because uh, they're eager to prove their new bona fides. Uh, or because of their conversion 
took place in a radicalized context. Uh, so they came in uh, in that in that way. Um, in fact, uh, their conversion may have simply been another manifestation of a radicalization process that they were already um, undergoing. So um, perhaps no surprise there either. Mary Louise, let me just on, on your first question um, add this comment in choice of targets. It often is and may well be the case in this instance um, of the terrorists having to weigh you know, operational feasibility versus the symbolic or other attractiveness uh, of the target. And I think something like uh, an air base in which uh, U.S. and Germans both have operations would, particularly for symbolic reasons the political statement would make would be a very attractive target even though the terrorists know full well that it would be harder operationally to tackle uh than, than a, you know, a train station or something so um that's calculation they're always going to do and in some cases the calculation is going to come out you know, the conclusion will be in one direction the other uh, in another instance it will be another direction in this instance if if those reports are correct uh I would surmise that they recognized it would be a tougher job, but uh, if they managed to pull it off, it would be kind of a twofer, uh, hitting something that the United States has a stake in, if it's a base that we use, uh, also hitting the whole idea of, uh, uh, in this case, uh, you know, German co cooperation with the U.S. military, uh, one more way of trying to strike a, a blow against Allied cooperation, to demonstrate to the Germans that they have a price to pay for cooperating with the U.S. and the U.S. military. These are all the sorts of uh, very attractive symbolic messages that could be sent if they could pull off anything in a place like uh, like Ramstein. And just one added point. Uh, if these, uh, it turns out that these uh, two of the three in Germany were uh, ethnic Germans, uh, uh, this will be uh, something that we've seen before in uh, Richard Reed and Jose Padillo uh, uh, in recruitment efforts by Al-Qaeda of, of Bosnians who don't look as if they're from the Middle East, maybe even blonde-haired, blonde blue-eyed Circassians, etc. There's going to be a lot of effort by the terrorist groups to recruit people who don't look as if they are Arabs or are from the Middle East. Uh, in, and uh, as uh, said, uh, sometimes uh, converts can be uh, extremely fanatic in these matters. I think uh, one of the central Al-Qaeda people is uh, called a zombie American. Uh, their spokesman who talks in a lot of their, their uh, videos to the West. So uh, uh, this is we're going to see more and more uh, 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 of this, and it's uh, uh, potentially a, an effective uh, a technique uh, for them in more than one way. Last question. My name is Ed Powers. I'm a semi-retired NASA engineer. Uh, it seems to me the by far away the most dangerous place in the world is the Arab-Israeli conflict particularly what was demonstrated last summer with Hezbollah and, uh, and Israel. And uh, it also appears likely that within a reasonable period of time, Hezbollah can and will have the uh, potential for destroying most, if not all, of Israel. We don't know quite Israel what Israel will do in the short term. But it seems like uh, we, we seem to bury this issue, bury this potential, 
and have a paralysis in, in trying to deal with it, uh, disarming Hezbollah uh, is likely very, very difficult. How do you all feel about this? It appears that uh, uh, in the not-too-distant future, uh, something can happen there which will inflame the whole area with Israeli retaliation. And I don't know what we can or should do about it. How do you all feel about that? Well, uh, I'll start. The uh, Persians invented chess, and they played well. Right now, I guess their most lethal uh, piece or queen is their nuclear weapons program. And they have various uh, rooks and pawns scattered around Syria, Hezbollah, Hamas. Uh, if they, uh, they end up effectively having fissionable material or otherwise acquire something, say, from North Korea, then uh, one of the ways they might try to carry out uh, uh, Ahmadinejad's uh, threat to destroy Israel would be via uh, uh, Hezbollah and some sort of, uh, of uh, nuclear weapon. It's not far-fetched. It may not happen. Well, certainly hope it never happens, but it might not be possible for some months to a few years. But it uh, is something we have to start thinking about and planning about and figuring out uh, how to deal with. Uh, I think uh, the Iranian hand behind uh, most anything like that is likely to be uh, the decisive one. Uh, I'm glad you raised the question of Hezbollah since we didn't really address it before. Um, you are talking about a group that, as Richard Armitage once described it, is still the A-team of international terrorism. And I think in terms of capabilities, that continues to be true. There's no reason to doubt it. But you have to consider not just capabilities, but intentions and also you know, the standing and the perception of the group in other eyes. And whether we like it or not, and there's plenty of reason for us not to like it, uh, Hezbollah, in the eyes of most other Lebanese, and indeed in the eyes of most Middle Easterners, is, has become a legitimate political actor in Lebanon. We've seen the political support they've gotten. They have scored all kinds of successes uh, in playing the you know, largely peaceful political game in Lebanon, even though they still have their militia and their, their uh, dirty work department uh, under Magnia, which has the capability that I referred to. Um, I think the you know the Israeli-Hezbollah war last summer. Uh, one of the big lessons that I would draw from it is um, you're not going to uh, crush Hezbollah through military force. And uh, you know that war was a military tactical defeat in many ways uh, for Hezbollah. The Israeli defense forces did inflict an awful lot of harm. Politically, it seemed to have been, if anything, a success for them. And Nasrallah uh, made the most of it. Um, so I, I don't see that ch equation changing a whole lot. I also don't see any particular reason, certainly short of something we might do or someone else might do to get the Iranian patron that uh, Jim Wolsey just mentioned, to get the Hezbollah client, which isn't a puppet, although it's still a client, uh, to strike back. Uh, I mean, the, the, the main thing I'm having in mind here is a military clash between the United States and Iran. Then this particular glove certainly would come, come off. This fist would be uh, be used. Short of that, I don't see any reason either from Iran's point of view, or certainly from the point of view of Nasrallah and Hezbollah, to go out and try to crush Israel. They know they can't do it, and it would lead to some of the very you know inflaming of the region that would redound to their own disadvantage. Uh, that I think your question alluded to. How do you deal with it? Uh, I don't have a good formula, and uh, given you know the group uh, that. Uh, 
up until 9-11 was responsible for the single biggest, uh, most deadly act of terrorism against U.S. citizens, the bombing of the Marine barracks in 1983. Given that we can't forget that, and given that it is still a terrorist group and it does have this capability, uh, we, we can't just join the chorus of, well, they're another legitimate political actor. Of course we can't do that. But we're faced with those realities I just described. And, and I think it's more of a, a, a task of you know, keeping a lid on things while continuing the uh, task of someday, I'm not predicting it, but someday I would hope that you know, Ibn Magnia would come into custody and he would, um, he would pay for his crimes. But until that, we just need to keep the, the inflaming from, and, and the spread of violence from, from occurring. If I could just add to that, uh, uh, Sheikh <coughs> Nasrallah said shortly after the Summer War that Hezbollah had made a serious mistake starting it. Um, and he said that not because he's prone to self-disclosure and public self-criticism um, as a person, uh, but because uh, Hezbollah within the Lebanese political context had come under a lot of uh, criticism and um, uh, Hezbollah, which has connections in Europe that are politically important to it, uh, had put those connections at risk. Just to follow up on on uh, Paul's uh, closing point, uh, however, you know we should take note of the fact that Unifil Two is on the ground, and uh, they're not nothing. <clears throat> that is to say, they're not quite as much nothing as Unifil One was. There is French armor on the ground in southern Lebanon. Now, there are some uh, problems with their mission and the way they're carrying it out, and there are problems on the Syrian-Lebanese uh, border with respect to the resupply of Hezbollah um, with, uh, uh, with rockets to replace its, its uh, depleted stores uh, from the summer war. But in terms of keeping a lid on things, it's essential that uh, – the UNIFIL mission uh, be fully supported diplomatically and financially and so forth. And secondly, um, uh, the West, uh, whatever that is, uh, has to support the senior government. There is a parallel government system developing in Lebanon right now. It's not going to be good for Lebanese uh, security, sovereignty, or cohesion. It's a bad thing. And Support for the Senora government is going to be essential, and probably in this setting, some form of diplomatic contact with the Syrians is going to be important because, in as much as the Iranians support Hezbollah, they would not be able to do so if it didn't, if that support didn't align with how Syrians perceive their own interests. So, that's another piece of the puzzle that we need to bear in mind. Thank you. Uh, I'm going to let Moises have the last word, but I want to thank our panelists for a very uh, informed and informative discussion. Uh, and, and again, thanks to the people who pulled uh, this survey together. Uh, we're back to Iraq on Friday. We're going to have uh, Senator Casey and Congresswoman Tauscher uh, here to give their reflections on their recent visits to Iraq. Uh, but uh, this, again, this has been a terrific collaboration, terrific panel. Um, and uh, I thank you all for coming, Moises. Final yes, word. just uh, echoing the same words. Thank you all uh, for coming. Uh, we hope to see you next year when we're going to have another iteration of the survey. Thank you very much, and thanks for the time. <laughs>